You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for September 20th, 2020, the 16th Sunday after Pentecost. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Peter Walsh. It's based on Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Good morning. I'm so pleased that you're joining us here. The purpose of this sermon is to make you happier, and it is to help you align with the divine. Now, of course, all of that only happens by the grace of God. This sermon has three different working titles, and perhaps if you hang in here to the end, you might email me and tell me which, which you think is the best title. The first title is Envy and the Art of Making Yourself Miserable. The second title is I Got Dem Silver Medal Blues. And here I think of maybe a, a young Bob Dylan singing, I got them silver metal blues. And then the third potential title is, God will tell you, colon, don't believe everything you think. It's 2012, the Summer Olympics in London. It is the award ceremony for the vault competition. A young Russian woman named Maria Paseka wins the bronze medal. She's really a girl, and she steps to the podium, and they put the bronze medal on her. They give her the flowers, and she stands there, and she smiles. And then it comes time for the silver medal. The silver medal is awarded to a young 16-year-old girl from the United States. Her name is Michaela Maroney. Now, everybody thought that Michaela Maroney was going to win the gold medal, including Michaela Maroney. She was by far the best vaulter in the world, but not on this day. Her first vault was extraordinary. She went running down there and she popped up in the air. I mean, she was way up in the air, spinning around. Boom, she lands it, and the crowd goes wild. In her second vault, she stands there composing herself. She steps onto the runway and off she goes. Boom, 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 boom. Hits that vault, goes up, twist, twist, twist. But when she lands, she lands not on her feet, but really on her feet and her bahuki. Crowd <gasps> gasps. She stands up and finishes, and then they wait to see who will win the medal. The judgment comes, Michaela is to win the silver medal. So when the moment comes for the award ceremony, Michaela steps up onto the podium. She leans forward as she is adorned with that silver medal, so big and so heavy. And then she is given a bouquet of flowers, all this while Chariots of Fire is playing. And she receives the award with dignity. But then, with millions of people watching on television, a whole stadium full of people cheering, she does something. She raises her eyebrows and just twists her lips to the left. It is just under two seconds that she does this. She scowls with this look that is somewhere between disgust and disappointment. It, it, no matter what, she is not impressed. And the whole world knows exactly what is going on here. And immediately, Michaela's image of that scowling face becomes known as the face. And it, suddenly Michaela's at the seven wonders of the world, looking at the, the Great Wall of China. 
Michaela's looking at the landing on the moon. Mm, not impressed. The whole team wins the gold medal and they go to the White House. And when she meets President Obama, the two of them take a picture together with Michaela looking at President Obama with a not impressed look. And President Obama looking at Michaela with a not impressed look. This look of the face makes Michaela more famous than the fact that she is a world-class vaulter. Now the whole question of what is happening here becomes a great fascination to cognitive psychologists and they launch into research about medal winners. They all start to look at the faces of the gold medal winners, at the faces of the silver medal winners, and at the faces of the bronze medal winners. Study upon study, sophisticated uh, technology reading people's faces. And one of the studies comes out of Cornell. And the psychologist there, the cognitive psychologist, puts all of these faces on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being agony, 10 being ecstasy. They are on the agony and the ecstasy scale. And all of the research across different places and disciplines shows basically the same thing. But in that one study, the bronze medalists came in with an average of 7.1. In other words, they felt really great about winning the bronze medal. The silver medalists, on the other hand, came in with a 4.8 on the agony to ecstasy scale. In other words, they felt cruddy. In other words, they weren't just less happy than the bronze medals. They were on the other side of five. They were on the agony side of things, right? They actually felt bad. They didn't feel good about their achievement, about being the second best in the world. They felt all of the emotions of failure. Of course, cognitive psychologists are not just trying to see how Olympians feel about their performance, but from this, they're drawing conclusions about all the rest of us, about human nature. And the cognitive psychologists pretty much all agree that we do not measure ourselves objectively. We do not see ourselves objectively. We measure ourselves in comparison to somebody else. So, I mean, in other words, the silver medalist should feel better than the bronze medalist from an objective standpoint, right? Coming in second is better than coming in third. But that's just not how we live it out. That's not how our lives roll, right? The bronze medalist feels better. So the silver medalist takes a look at the gold medalist on the higher podium and is full of envy with a kind of woulda, shoulda, coulda. I could have done it. I should have done it. It really, that was my spot, right? But not the bronze medalist. The bronze medalist looks at the, silver, the gold medalist and says, oh, there's someone in between. I was not going to get that. But the bronze medalist also looks uh, over his or her shoulder in the opposite way and sees the poor, the poor person that came in fourth and didn't get a, didn't get a medal at all, right? Just, just feels bad. So this silver medal syndrome, this silver medal blues, as it were, plays out in today's parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And those laborers who got there first in the morning, uh, they have the grumbling envies for all of those laborers that came later in the day and were paid the same amount. So the parable unfolds really in three scenes. It's quite a parable. Uh, you know, the first scene is the householder hiring laborers throughout the 12-hour day. The second scene 
is the payment of the laborers, starting from the last, from those who showed up at 5 o'clock, all the way back to those who came in the pre-dawn darkness. And then the third scene is the dialogue between the grumbling laborer and the householder. That's where the deep inner meaning is. That's where, if you're in high school, you start to really dig in to what does this all mean here. And the householder lays it out for that grumbling labor. It's almost as though he turns it into a courtroom, right? He says, friend, I might say somewhat ironically, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? In other words, there's no injustice here. And then the householder ramps it up. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Ooh, right? The answer is obviously yes. But the householder doesn't stop. And then he says, do you begrudge my generosity? Or are you envious because I am generous? Ooh, this is rough, right? It is envy that makes those 12-hour laborers unhappy. It's not the scorching hot sun. It's that they're envious of those who came later in the day. They're unable to see the, the generosity of the householder as good. They're unable to, to, to rejoice in the good fortune of those who came later in the day. And they're not even able to uh, be thankful for the fact that they had work and were paid. The parables of Jesus really try to teach us about the mindset, the, the heart set, the, the being set of God, right? And, and what do they teach us but the fact that uh, God's ways are not like human ways. This is throughout all of the parables, of course, and here I'm reminded of Isaiah's uh, beautiful passage there. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Right? So God is operating at a different frequency, a different vibration. And, and this parable teaches that God is love, right? Just as 1 John says, and that that love is extended far beyond where we would extend it. And we learn also that God's justice is not like our justice. We think of justice as reward in proportion to merit, right? Equal pay for equal work. Not so with God. And we also see when we hear that the last shall be first and the first shall be last, that all of those categories of worth and value, all of those hierarchies, uh, all those medals that we lay on every aspect of our lives are meaningless in God's world, or perhaps God just simply reverses them, right? This is all higher level thinking, right? This is thinking not based in the human condition, but based in the divine condition. And so the purpose of these parables is really to help us dismantle our human nature. It is to help us dismantle uh, certain social norms that we create. I mean, dismantle means to take the cloak off, to take the mantle off. But these, these parables are also seeking to help us put the mantle on, the mantle of the way of God, the mantle of the way of love. Now, let's talk for a moment about sin. I used to always think of sin with reference to the question was, was I making God happy, right? I mean, as a kid, I always thought that God 
uh, had this, like this gigantic accountant with this amazing ledger that included every person in the world. And every time somebody did something good, we would get a little check in the, in the credit side. We'd get a little smiley face. And every time we did something bad, we'd get a little check in the debit side, right? You know, we would, uh, we'd get a frowny face. And that the, the goal of life was, when it all was over, to, to be in the black and not the red, right? To have more credits uh, than debits. I always thought that sin sounded kind of fun, right? Sounded more fun than virtue. I mean, we have a sin city. We don't have any virtue city. Imagine having virtue city with everybody flocking to virtue city. But what I did not know is that sin can make us profoundly unhappy, right? Envy makes us unhappy. Comparison is the thief of joy. We sometimes talk about the seven deadly sins and they are lust and gluttony and greed and sloth and wrath and envy and pride. But really what they are, they're like the seven great unhappinesses. To be plagued by one of these is to be plagued by an unhappiness. I see uh, disordered passions and stinking thinking and runaway emotions can make us miserable. Oh, they can give us the silver medal blues, right? If we do not dismantle certain parts of our thinking, if we do not dismantle certain societal norms, we may actually live the whole of our lives and miss the meaning of life. It, it's, a, it's a tragedy of sorts, right? The goal of life is not for us to outdo our neighbor. The goal of life is not to win some kind of gold medal of achievement in, in the discipline that we choose. That's not the goal of life, right? The goal of life is to become like God. The goal of life is to become love. And when we become more loving, we discover a soul satisfaction that is deeper than happiness, right? We discover the peace of God which passes all understanding. And when we live in that peace of God which passes all understanding, we actually rejoice in the good fortune of others. We rejoice in all generosity, and we rejoice in thankfulness for the good fortunes that have come our way. Peace be with you. Amen. You can find more sermons on our website at www.stmarksnewcanon.org.